Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 16, The Chamber of Secrets. All those times we were in that bathroom and she was just three toilets away, said Ron bitterly at breakfast next day. And we could have asked her. And now, I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, you're telling us a story about yearning today. Mm -hmm. Do you yearn? Who doesn't yearn? So a couple of years ago, I needed to have surgery. And I lived like a 10-minute walk from the hospital where I was having surgery. And Peter was going to take a couple of days off of work in order to take care of me after surgery. And I was just very logical about it. And I think that I can get like this sometimes where I said to Peter, Peter was like, do you want me to be at the hospital while you're having surgery? And do you want me to drive you? And I was like, no, 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 no. Don't waste your time. Like, what are you going to do? Sit in the waiting room and just think about me having surgery, just come when the nurse calls you that I'm ready for visitors. He works like a 15-minute bike ride away from the hospital. You like you can be there in 15 minutes before I even wake up. And he was like, okay, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I'm absolutely sure. I do not need you in the hospital just waiting for me. Come when the nurse calls that I'm out of recovery. Well, I talked a big talk because I woke up in recovery high as a kite on all sorts of anesthesia and turned to the nurse and said, I want Peter. 
and like sobbing was like, I want, why isn't he here? I told him he didn't have to be here, but I want him here. And I was very upset about it. And so she called Peter and was like, she really needs you here. It is urgent. So he bikes over. By the time he arrives, I fall back asleep. And then four hours later, I woke up sort of for real and Peter was in the room and I was so glad he was there. I was like, oh, it's so nice that you're here. And I had forgotten that I had beckoned him in sobs. And so it was almost like my desire for him being there went from yearning back to another thing, to a more reasonable like desire to have my family close to me. So I'm wondering about that, right? Like, is yearning just about degrees of desire? Hmm. Or what was it about that moment where I was like scared and cold and stoned that I yearned for Peter to be with me? And then four hours later, it was like really nice. But I don't think it was like this desperate yearning. That's interesting. Like like the question of degree of desire or or maybe quality of desire. Because yeah. when I think about yearning, I think to me yearning connotes like almost like an ache, mm-hmm. right? There's like a, where desire can sometimes be exciting yeah. and not aching, right? But yearning, it seems like there's this ache. Now, this is interesting etymologically. Oh, I have no Vanessa. doubt. <laughs> because the, the the word yearning comes from actually a German root, which just means to desire. Hmm. Even further back to like a Proto-Indo-European root, which has to do with grasping or mm. holding something, right? Mm-hmm. But But the difference between like, if this is just a German form of the word desire and they mean the same thing, then you kind of have to get into the, the complexities of English where Latin words tend to be more rarefied and highfalutin, like desire comes from a Latin root. And English words that root in German tend to be earthier, right? So like yearn maybe is like earthier. This is because, you know, Latin-speaking Normans conquered the German-speaking Angles and Saxons in England. And so the common language was more rooted in Germanic language, and the language of the upper classes was more rooted in Latin, right? Which is why we call the animal in the field a cow and the thing on a plate beef, right? Because the one comes from Latin, the other comes from Germanic. I wonder if there's something similar with like yearning and desire. Desire is like the formal refined version of wanting something, and yearning is like the earthy, down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth kind of form of wanting something. Right. Going into it, I knew that technically I was going to be taken care of and so did not need Peter. And then I don't know about other people, but when I wake up from surgery, I'm very cold. And there was something about, right, like I was cold and scared and didn't really know where I was. And so I, right, like there was this like yearning for someone who made me feel safe. And then it sort of became like more highfalutin again, right? Because my my basic, right. I felt safe again. So I didn't like need Peter in the same way. You gained some control of yourself or whatever. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to talk about it in this chapter because this is the chapter, I mean, stuff gets real. Ginny gets taken and Mm. where yearning plays a role in this and the desire to sort of change the fates of people. And this is high stakes and I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, me too. Matt, are you ready? Uh, This, (laughs) no, I am not. I'm not ready this week, but I am eager to participate. Wonderful. That's all I care about. I yearn. I yearn. To recap? To participate. I yearn. I yearn to do well. I think this is an ache in me. That's very sweet. On your mark, get set, 
go. So they're going to look for Myrtle, and then they find out that exams have been moved up, and that's not good news. But there is good news. The Mandrakes are ready to be murdered. Uh, and so uh, and so um, they decide to go talk to Myrtle. But on the way to Myrtle, they're redirected and caught, and so they have to go talk to Hermione, who's the better person to talk to, even though she can't speak anyway, because they, ha- they find it's a basilisk, and they find it's in the pipes. And they go, for some reason, to Lockhart to get his help, and he is not helpful and actually possibly very violent, but they escape that, and then they go, and there's and his, his spell backfires, and he loses his memory, and and Ron and Harry are separated. That's your chapter. Yeah, that's it. That's your chapter. Vanessa, are you ready? I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. So Ron and Harry are like, okay, it's a basilisk, and it's living in the pipes, and they go to the teacher's lounge, and the teachers are like chaos, and Snape and everybody is like, oh, Lockhart, you should go solve it, and Lockhart's like, psych, I'm going to run away, and then the boys are like, okay, he's going to try, and um, Harry speaks parcel tongue and opens up the Chamber of Secrets, and they go down, and Lockhart's wand rebounds and hits himself because he's using Ron's spellotape tape wand, and a wall falls, and Harry's like, I'm going to go and try and get Ginny, and there's a big um, snake thing, and Ron is like, I'll stay here. There's a big snake thing. There's a big snake thing. That's 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 fine. That communicates the idea. Uh, we are we are we each. I think you'll join me in this, Vanessa. We each are profound failures, because although you mentioned Ginny's name, neither of us mentioned the fact that Ginny was taken. taken. She was taken, which is probably the most important event yeah. in in the chapter. Like, the, if there was one thing we should have said, each of us would have done better if we had just said. Ginny is taken and stopped and waited for 28 more seconds. Yeah. They would have been more comprehensive recaps than the ones that we gave. So let's start with Ginny. Vanessa? Yeah. Like, do, do, can we apply the theme of yearning to, to Ginny's story anywhere in this chapter? Where do you see it? So something is happening where she is officially so scared that she wants to talk to Ron and Harry, Right. Her desire to share the guilt and share the information is outweighing any fear of repercussions. And that's yearning, right? Yearning to, like, put down your burden and share it with others and allow others to sort of pick it up and run with it, right? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the things you said in your story, like, helps us think about this, is that when you felt safe after you woke up, having recovered from the anesthesia, then you're like, oh, I'm happy to see you, Peter. I'm glad you're here. Had you not been here, I would have desired for you to be here, but everything's fine, yeah. right? But when you when you woke up still under the anesthesia and did not feel entirely safe because you were in that state, then you were like, I, I need Peter here in a deep, fundamental way that I need to articulate to this nurse, right? There's something about competing interests for Ginny, right? For so long, she's not said anything because she's she's afraid she's going to get into trouble. Her fear of not getting help has by now overtaken her fear of getting into trouble. And so... Yeah, and so there's that deep kind of frightened desire, which is one of the ways that you described what yearning was for you in that story. That makes me wonder, what's the relationship between yearning and fear then? Or between desire and fear? Maybe not a necessary one. Maybe Ginny's just a completely unique case. But there's obviously there's a lot of fear at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry right now. I mean, they're talking about how everyone's scared because Dumbledore's gone. Everyone's scared and they're moving up the exams. Everyone's scared, and and that's why they're so relieved the mandrakes are are ready to be harvested and murdered, right? Like, there is a lot of fear operating here. Yeah, I mean, this is just kind of raising questions about the relationship between fear and desire slash yearning. And it seems also, given what you said or what we were talking about, about yearning being something like more 
earthy or fundamental or or raw, maybe yearning is closer to fear always than desire is, if that makes sense. Yeah. Fear or, I mean, like, or maybe hmm. pain, right? Hmm. The pain of missing someone. Yeah, the ache. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about when I was trying to understand yearning ab- sort of abstractly is that I feel like the thing we most yearn for is an in-between time to pass, like for resolution. I would imagine that McGonagall yearns for Dumbledore to come Mm. back and for a certain kind of normalcy to return, right? Or there's like a yearning for your partner when they're away at war, right? You just want things back to be restored, restored to a version of the world that you want to live in, right? It's not... I mean, my own sense of yearning is that it's it has also has some relationship to the impossible, right? Like, mm. which is maybe why it's associated with fear, because you're you're afraid that you can't have what you want so deeply, right? But like, I would use the language of yearning when thinking about relatives who have died, right? Right. In a different way than I use mourning. Mourning is like processing their loss, but just like my grandma and I used to talk about baseball. Yeah. And I, it's a particular kind of conversation with a particular person with whom I had a particular relationship. And I yearn for those. And that's not a desire that's going to be realized. Right. Which is, again, related maybe to this question of desire is refined and controlled and like, yeah. right, but yearning is is less controlled and maybe closer to fear or impossibility or, or something. And if we describe Ginny's approaching the boys to talk about the Chamber of Secrets in this moment as yearning, boy, that frames her in a really sad and difficult way, right? If she's in this place, which is full of fear and impossibility and there's no way out and it's very raw and acute. And I think that's, these are all accurate ways to describe where she is. Yeah. It frames her condition or her plight really dramatically. Yeah, right. She would be yearning for a time in which she didn't have any of this information. And so the best thing that she right. can do is pa- pass on some of the responsibility to other people to help her solve it. Yeah, she yearns to never have picked up this diary, but that's not, she needs some other way out and every other way out is frightening. Yeah, I'm really interested in that idea of yearning, right? Because I I think that it encapsulates what I was talking about with this like desire for the passage of time. It's like, I just want to fast forward through this part to get to the next part, Mm. which is also impossible, right? I was just thinking McGonagall just must be in such a state of yearning Right. We see her cry in this chapter. She says, like, I don't have to tell you that I have never been more scared. Right. And the line that really gets me is it has happened. Like she's been waiting for this. She knew this was coming. Right. Hmm. The fact that she doesn't have to say what has happened at least not first, right? The worst thing has happened. I've been afraid that this is going to happen and it happened, right? Like yearning for a school year of, you know, normalcy and annoying grading and Draco Malfoy being a jerk, all the things that six months ago she found to be the most annoying parts of her job, right? Like yearning to go back to a time in which those were the problems seems almost potent to me from her in this chapter. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of conversations we've been having about, like, why are they keeping the school open? Right? What is the rationale? And one of the rationales we gave was, like, maybe there's an overconfidence in which they think with Dumbledore here, whatever. I know Dumbledore's gone now, but at least prior to Dumbledore's departure, with Dumbledore here, 
the school really is the safest place because we have the best wizard in the world protecting these children. But, you know, the degree to which we're talking about yearning's relationship to impossibility, there is something about McGonagall walking in, in and not having to give a referent to her pronoun, just saying it has happened, which means, oh, they've been talking about this in the staff lounge. People have been voicing opinions about whether or not this might happen. And she is saying the thing that we thought was impossible is possible. And the thing that we thought was possible, that we could have a normal school year, that we could protect them, is actually impossible. Like, there is exactly what you described. Like, the, this, the, the thing we yearn for has been lost, and the thing we yearn to avoid has been realized, right? Yeah. So, Matt, I'm going to say something bold in this chapter. Right. I love bold. Okay, so Lockhart, obviously a jerk in a lot of ways. We're going to talk about that in a minute. There's one thing that Lockhart says that I'm like, yes, true. He says, I'm pretty sure that fighting like this was not in the job description. Yep. And I'm like, yep, super not. He yearned for, uh, God knows what, a good salary for a year, adoring students, like phoning it in at a cushy job. He did not sign up to like be a hero. And so I'm wondering if you think, because I'm obviously very frustrated with him in this chapter that he like is not helping at all and actually is actually getting in the way. But I'm wondering to what extent we forgive people who are like, I don't yearn to be brave. Is this like a moral courage that we require of him? Or can we say, no, it wasn't in his job responsibility? That's a great question. I think I have a couple of opinions about yeah. this or a couple of things to say about it. I don't know if I have opinions. I think I am not a fan of Gilderoy Lockhart. I find him very irritating. And as everyone who reads these books does, he is badly mistreated in this chapter. Yeah. He gets far worse than he deserves. I agree. Uh, well, uh, he trying to obliviate children. Okay, he deserves pretty bad. But I'll say three things. First, you're absolutely right. He did not sign up for this. And he should not be expected to do it. Right? Second, a child has been taken to the Chamber of Secrets. And the teachers are all like, well, before we respond to this crisis, let's just spend three or four minutes, like, making Gilderoy... Lockhart uncomfortable <laughs> and it's explained away it's explained away at the end a little bit when McGonagall says oh now we've gotten him out of the way but yeah. you know he can, anybody could have put him in a body bind curse very yeah. easily and he would have been out of the way right it's they, they wanted to see him squirm which seems like a weird impulse in that moment to just yearn to see a person you dislike squirm right I don't know why Ron and Harry go to Gilderoy Lockhart they're like we have this information who should we go to Obviously, the least effective teacher on the staff. That's the wrong answer. Go to someone else. Go to anyone else. They would be a greater help. And it seems like Ron and Harry know that he would be a greater help. So I don't know why they go to him. I will say, however, the question you said, like, why do we demand this moral courage of people? It should not be expected of him because he's a teacher and not he didn't sign up for a hero in the job description. I think one of the reasons why it's satisfying for us as readers in some ways is that he makes a living off of the perception of his courage, right? And so, and he, and he bases a whole persona and career off of giving the impression that he is exactly the kind of person who would want to run headlong into the Chamber of Secrets in order to save 
a child when actually he's the kind of person who would run away from it and sacrifice a child to preserve that reputation, right? And so it's more than just like, he must have moral courage that's implied in the job description if it's not written. No, he's, that's not true. You're right about that. However, because he has made such a big deal of his own moral courage, if six months ago he had been saying, listen, I can tell you about dark arts, but don't take me anywhere near a werewolf. Mm-hmm. It'd be different than than what's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah, it, I will say I found his monologue really interesting when he's explaining to the kids what he does, because the thing that he describes is a yearning for fame, right? He says, look, if you want to be famous, these are the things that you have to do. And first of all, it sounds like a lot of work. So it's not that he's lazy, right? Second of all, it sounds very morally bankrupt. It sounds bad, essentially, like nothing about what he does sounds fun or joyful, but what he has this complete compulsion where he needs to be famous. And so yeah. it, is that a yearning, like a, a an overwhelming desire to be famous? This is really interesting because these are such closely related terms. I, that's a really great question, Vanessa, because we had said that yearning was somehow less controlled than some forms of desire. Obviously, desire is sometimes, I mean, these, these terms overlap, so I'm not trying to draw strict differences, right? But that that we had been saying, based upon your story and our conversation so far, that yearning is somehow less controlled than, than other forms of desire. But compulsion means that you have no control over it, right? So this seems more to me like a compulsion, right? Like, I, or at least as you're describing it, like this, this, this need to be famous is so deep-seated that he can delude himself about things in order to convince himself that he is famous and rightly famous, like he's justifiably famous, right? And in his monologue, he says, oh, those the, the poor people who actually did these heroic acts, they don't have a smile like mine. Like I'm right. actually getting their story out in the world because I have the celebrity to do so. So it's a gift to them, right? He's He is actively deluding himself in order to meet this compulsive need. I don't know if yearning goes that far, but again, kind of like with desire, I'm not sure there's a strict line dividing these things one from another. So I think I still want to preserve something about control, like degrees of control help us map ourselves along the gradient from desire to yearning to compulsion. But I'm not really sure exactly how to plot these actions on that line. Yeah. And I mean, we also just don't have enough information about Lockhart, right? If we knew some sort of like sad backstory about how he never felt seen by his parents, right? We could be like, ah, he yearns for this. Yeah, right. But if it's ego driven, right? And it's an obsession that has nothing to do with that, then it stops being yearning. Now, that's really interesting, right? Because that's less about thinking like desire, yearning, and compulsion as degrees along a gradient and more like the yearning is for a particular kind of attention or affection that bears out as a compulsion to be famous. And so like the one causes the other rather than Mm -hmm. one being like developing into the other. Right. And then, then you can explain the overlap between the two more coherently, probably. That's really good. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. I have what I think is a beautiful moment of yearning in this chapter, which is Ron saying, I'm going to keep moving the rocks for when you come back. And that, to me, is like the best form of yearning, right? And we could use other words here, too. We could use words like hope, right? And I, I, don't, I don't even think it's faith, though. But they are in the Chamber of Secrets. Lockhart has just tried to confund the boys with Ron's wand. The spell backfires. Lockhart gets confunded himself and some of the chamber sort of falls and there is now this like rubble wall between Harry and Ron and they cannot get to each other and Harry sort of decides he's like I have to keep going to look for Ginny she could be dead or dying and like I don't have a minute to lose and so there's this conversation between Ron and Harry where Ron says what now we can't get through it'll take ages and Harry you know, is sort of deciding whether or not to keep going. And Harry just decides. He says to Ron, wait there, wait with Lockhart, I'll go on. If I'm not back in an hour, and the text says there's a very pregnant pause. And then Ron's response, I just think is so beautiful. I'll try to shift some of this rock so you can get back through. And I like moving the rock so that when Harry and returns hopefully with Ginny alive, they can get back through. That seems to be like yearning embodied, right? Like he can't do anything to make sure that this goes well, but he can open this wall so that if everything goes well, they can get back through. I like that example. I mean, I think that there's so much unspoken in this exchange. I mean, literally unspoken because Harry doesn't finish the sentence. Yeah. But I'm also thinking... Ron is thinking we need to collect the bodies, right? Like, you don't know, like, the wall has to come down. Like, yeah. whatever happens in there, this wall has to come down. What I'm going to say to Harry, because he's 
Ginny's only hope, and he's his own only hope now that I'm trapped behind this wall. What I'm going to say to to Harry is, so you can get back through, but like the reason I'm doing it is not clear to me. I just know it needs to be done. And that's right. That's the yearning part. I know this wall needs to come down. That's where that's the kind of aching impossibility, all that stuff we've been talking about. Yeah. I think that's a great example of yearning. I also love that, that he kicks Lockhart in the shins (laughs) while doing it. To me, that's just like a great detail. Like I yearn also take that. I like that moment. Vanessa, I have one more situation which I think yearning might help describe or that might help us describe yearning. Great. Throughout this book, Myrtle has been, you know, a a character of comic relief in ways that we have, you know, recognized as kind of tragic. She was a child murdered at the school a long time ago and that she's obviously very sad about it, right? And her tears have been like used for humor throughout, but her her affect has been fairly consistent throughout this book. She's always sad, always grieving, always moaning. She's moaning Myrtle, right? But in this chapter, for the first time they ask her a question, they say, like, how did you die? And her affect changes and she says, oh, it was dreadful. And it says she said it with relish. Like, just to be asked the question, someone interested in her story, like the the moaning and the lamenting and the tears go away. And then it's, then she becomes this like storyteller, this performer, like, let me tell you my story, right? All she wanted to be this time was heard and recognized. And to me, that seems like a yearning. What she's grieving over by the time the children meet her is less the fact of her death and more that no one cares about the fact of her death, <laughs> right? And the moment somebody cares about the fact of her death, she emerges out of out of this very static affective state of like general sadness into like animation into like something else something that she can something that can be described as as rolling does as stating this with relish right that's uh yeah i just thought i don't know what do you think about that yeah i i I think that you're absolutely right that it's about a desire to be seen (sighs) i think there's also the sense that like if the people at the school had just paid better attention to the person who had suffered, they could have figured this out a lot earlier. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that happens in this chapter is, very luckily, instead of going to Myrtle, they go to Hermione because they're redirected because they get caught by McGonagall and Hermione has it figured out and she has the clue. And so fine, that's great. Hermione figures it out even while petrified. She's smarter than everybody, yeah. right? So smarts is important. But kindness is even better than smarts because... If when the first person was petrified, or nay, when Moaning Myrtle had first been murdered, if someone had just said to her ghost, what happened to you? Yeah. They would know exactly the creature that was in the walls. They would know that it was still in the walls. They would know that Hagrid was falsely accused. They would know that it wasn't Aragog. Just the fact that they all preferred to kind of caricature and ridicule her in her distress is what kept anybody at this school from knowing far earlier on exactly what happened because she is super willing to say it. Yeah. Or she is super willing to tell that story. And we know that she's super willing to tell that story because the first time she's asked in this book, her complete affect changes and she just gives the answer. Yeah. The only thing I can say is that I feel like what often keeps us from asking those questions, and I'm not sure that this is what's going on here because I think you're right. Everybody enjoys mocking Myrtle. But sometimes we don't ask those questions out of a sense of politeness, right? Mm. Yeah. Or fear. And I just wonder if to some extent we all should be a little braver asking those questions and also just like 
therefore not being hurt or embarrassed if somebody essentially says, no, I don't want to talk about it. Right. Yeah. But like in case the person wants to talk about it, say, hey, if you want to, you know, how did you die? But I understand if this is something you don't want to talk about to give them the grace to bow out of it. But I know I often will be like, I kind of want to know for gossipy reasons and I don't want to pry. So even though I think it's also the kind thing to do to ask, I like don't ask. Yeah. And I think that also sometimes like our politeness isn't entirely self-serving, right? Like sometimes we're like, oh, this person whose loved one died a couple of months ago hasn't brought it up to me. Right. Maybe I won't bring it up to them because maybe they're not thinking about it and don't want to. Exactly. I don't want to make them sad in the middle of their work day. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. But actually they probably are. Yeah. Right. And so I think you're right. Just a little bit more courage and a little bit less anxiety that will be misunderstood as insensitive while trying to be sensitive. Just say like, it's okay if you don't want to talk about it, but I'm really thinking about you in this way. Can you, if you want to talk about it, I'm here for you. That's all it would have taken. And also this is not a responsibility that I, that I think we need to to foist upon 12 year old children. Like there are lots of teachers in the school who have known about Myrtle all these years as well and had a good person to ask about what happened all those years ago and failed to. Yes. I think that let's, let's all treat each other like Myrtle a little, like we want Myrtle to be treated. Right. And just like ask those questions. Kindness first. Right. Yeah. So, Matt, we are doing Florilegia this week, and I'm curious what sentence sparkled up at you. Here's a sentence that sparkled up at me. Mm -hmm. There was an explosion of cheering. Aw, that's nice. So this is right after Professor McGonagall says there's good news, and everyone suggests a bunch of good news it could possibly be, which it isn't. (laughs) Right? So she says the mandrakes are ready. And we have talked previously on this podcast about like how disturbing that is that like the joke has been like oh they're they're moving in with each other or they're throwing parties while their parents are away right they are so human like these roots and she's like oh they're all ready to be murdered and sliced up into bits and and fed as medicine to these these petrified children which is a disturbing thing but that's also why i thought the sentence was so interesting because there was an explosion of cheering it like the juxtaposition of explosion which we think of as a violent thing with cheering which is like this enthusiastic expression obviously on the one hand it's just descriptive because the cheering erupted suddenly as an explosion does but just because of everything we've been saying on this podcast, as we've been talking about the mandrakes, about how disturbing this practice is, the kind of violence, the explosion, it seems like, I wonder if there's a little echo of that, of mm-hmm. like this this idea that violence begets um, healing in this in this case. So that's, that's, that's why I chose that sentence. That's why it sparkled up at me, Vanessa. What's your sentence? My sentence, Matt, is mark my words, he said, ushering them around a corner. And it, this is Lockhart. And he is leading the students to the next class. And he is saying, the next sentence he says is, the first words out of the poor petrified students' mouths is going to be, it was Hagrid. And I just, what I love about it is that he is simultaneously sounding so confident, mark my words, but then ushering someone around the corner seems like a really good way to be like, 
sneaky with them. And I feel like that perfectly describes Lockhart of this like boastful confidence while also feeling the need to hide a lot. I've just been thinking a lot lately about, right, like when to trust people when they are very confident about things and where their confidence comes from. And it does, especially in light of, I feel like the new way that we have to plan things in the world of COVID, this confidence and sneakiness, I find very interesting. Yep. So Matt, our two sentences together are, there was an explosion of cheering. Mark my words, he said, ushering them around the corner. I mean, it sounds like he's creepy moving them away from the celebration. The phrase, mark my words, seems like, I am telling you something you don't expect. You should believe me. So it's almost like he's saying, don't cheer so fast. Don't be so excited so fast. There's something else is going on. And in that sense, he's right. Yeah. Right. In the in the literal sense of what's going on in the chapter, he's wrong because he thinks it's going to be Hagrid's going to be confirmed to be the the cause of all these problems. But in this sense, he's right. Like the the cheering is premature. There's there's much worse coming. Yeah. The other thing that is just is making me think about is that we should be skeptical of anyone who encourage, encourages us to think of ourselves as separate. Like I I just bought a car (laughs) and the car salesman kept saying, well, for you, we'll give you this special rate. (laughs) Right. And like every time I was like, that means that it's not for me. Right. Like that means it's just expensive. Right. And so whenever anyone is like, look over here, I feel like we should be like, why? (laughs) What's over there? And Lockhart is definitely part of that. It's like there's an explosion of yeah, cheering. Yeah, like it's like a faint. Yeah. yeah. Pay attention to the explosion of cheering. Yep. Okay, well, the other way around, mark my words, he said, ushering them around the corner. There was an explosion of cheering. It's a surprise party. It's a, it's a surprise party. It is. It's a surprise party. <laughs> it is. It's like he's super solemn and serious. Mark my words, nobody remembered your birthday. (laughs) And then around the corner, surprise. (laughs) Uh, I mean, the other way to read this is that there could be an explosion of cheering because someone has left the room, right? Like now that they're actually around the corner, everyone's like, thank God. Yeah. (laughs) Or it's the end of a play. Yes. Like the last words of the play are, mark my words, and they exit stage left, and then everyone erupts into applause. Which is so, that's, and Gilderoy Lockhart, a performer, a consummate performer. And all the world's a stage, Matt. All the world's a stage, that's right. The thing about spiritual practices, Vanessa, is, is right, is that we commit to them. And they, they, some days they yield great gifts, some days what the gift they yield is our commitment. And... I feel like it, it, today, like the, the meetings we got were not super revelatory, but it's about committing to the practice and keeping going with it. And so that's what we did. So thanks for, thanks for doing it with me. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now we have a voice memo from Kayla. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and the whole Sacred Text team. My name is Kayla, and I'm calling in from Dallas, Texas. I just listened to the most recent podcast episode on hate, and I just wanted to add some things about Filch. I know y'all touched on him a lot, but I really want to focus on the other teacher's just complete dismissal of his experience and his emotions when Mrs. Norris gets petrified. You know, they they just brush him off like, oh, he's fine, Filch, don't worry about it. But, you know, this is something that he might not be aware of. You know, he might not know what petrification means. And even if he is aware of it, you know, this is his, like, partner, right? I think that we could argue that maybe in a way Mrs. Norris is his soulmate. This is the person, the being who he loves the most in the world and who loves him the most in the world. And I just really think that some time should have been spent with him, you know, consoling him and explaining what petrification means, what the healing process would look like, and just letting him be in those emotions around other adults. I don't think it's okay that he, you know, threatened to kill the kids and shows animosity toward the kids, but I think it was on the other adults in the situation to remove Filch from the children and to just really give him that space to process. You know, um, even, you know, speaking as a therapist, when things happen to my like personal people, 
I kind of forget my clinical skills in a sense. You know, I forget the information, everything that I learned in school, everything that I've learned as a practicing professional, because it's different when it hits you so personally. And I'm really concerned that this dismissal of his emotions and his experience is just a step toward dehumanization. And he's already a marginalized person in the magical community. So I'm just curious on your thoughts and Thank you all for the podcast. It's been a real lifesaver. Thank you. Kayla, thank you so much for your voicemail. I completely agree. I feel like this gets back to something Matt, you and I were talking about earlier in the episode with Myrtle, right? Just, it's amazing what just checking in with someone can do and thinking about the fact that most likely no one has done that with Felch, I think is demonstrates a real missed opportunity and makes me want to make sure that those missed opportunities aren't happening in my life. Yeah, thanks, Kayla. And thanks, Vanessa. Because for me, Kayla's voicemail, her really astute and perceptive voicemail reminds me of something you said, Vanessa, in a previous episode, which is that, you know, the wizarding supremacy that lurks in the walls of this place isn't just the basilisk. It's also in the presumptions of the good-intentioned wizarding staff that don't even think to attempt to understand what this experience might be like for Filch, which is why they can so easily, as Kayla, you observe, so easily just ignore his experience of this event. So, yeah, Kayla, thanks for drawing our attention to it, and thanks for reminding us of of the work it takes to really attend to others' experiences and to pay attention to those who's, who are on the margins. Now is the time in our episode when we remember those members of our community who have been loved and lost. Audrey Sickles, 80, the most loving wife, mother, and grandmother. Chris Clark, 29, a best friend and adventurer. Erica Steed, 49, mother of one and a nurse. Nancy Crawley, 81, a comedian, teacher, grandma, and pastoral minister. Harold Hetchko, 65, a father, husband, neighbor, a great piano player and psychotherapist. Robert Jerry Johnston, 85, who led a life of service to others. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? I am blessing McGonagall. I just feel like, like Lockhart, this wasn't in her job description. She's deputy headmistress, which definitely means that she should be prepared to step in in case of an emergency. But the fact that she says that sentence of it happened, I feel like she knew this is exactly what she's scared of. And this happened on her watch. And I'm just really sorry because I don't feel like that is something that you get over. So for anyone who's had to step into a leadership position, 
or feels like they're in over their head, um, I'm just really sorry. And I'd like to offer a blessing. What about you, Matt? Vanessa, I'd like to bless Ron. And it's for the reasons you described in your example of Ron moving the rocks. I mean, it's for more than that. There has been terror through the school for several weeks. One of his best friends has been petrified. I'm, I'm not trying to diminish that. But, you know, his sister is taken to the Chamber of Secrets. He is facing stuff 12-year-olds shouldn't face. And you're right, that moment when it just keeps getting worse, a teacher tries to obliviate him. And then he's separated by from his other best friend by a wall of rocks. Just like the determination in that moment to keep moving rocks. That determination is a blessing and I want to bless him for it. Well, Matt, next week we're doing chapter 17, The Heir of Slytherin. And I would like you to tell me a story on the theme of compassion, please. I'd love to tell a story on the theme of compassion. I'd love to read chapter 17, The Heir of Slytherin through the theme of compassion. So that sounds great. Amazing. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. We have a Winnie the Pooh virtual pilgrimage and a Frankenstein pilgrimage that are on sale now. And you can find out more at NotSorryWorks.com. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is a Not Sorry production and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by Acast. This week, we'd like to thank Kayla for their voicemail, Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of you who sent in the names of your loved ones who have been lost. I have a couple of opinions about yeah. this or a couple of things to say about it. I don't know if I have opinions. Uh, well, I do have opinions. <laughs> they're, they're different answers to this, different this questions. This is like you live, live tweeting your, your thoughts. Yes, yes my thoughts. <laughs> right. This is all good stuff. Oh, my gosh. You're welcome, AJ.